welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. And I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will normally focus on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. However, this is a special episode because it's my birthday, my birthday month anyway. Uh, This time around, we're taking a little special mission to check out an issue of Our Fighting Forces featuring the Losers, specifically issue number 153. Strap in, people. It's going to be a ride. But first, Rich is here to hit y'all with some retroactive history. This is the first episode we've recorded since Easter. All hail the summer slowdown. And for those that don't follow the Facebook page, we've got an update for you. I invited Sue Glansman to my house for Easter weekend, and she accepted. She brought along her Yorkie, Zuni, and had a wonderful time. I gave her her promised Weird Warriors podcast t-shirt, which she wore all Easter, and she gave Max and I new copies of The Lonely War of Captain Willie Schultz that Sam had done the art on. Great addition to the collection. I'll admit I have not read it yet. Shame. For newer listeners to the show, you have to dive into our archives and listen to our first Road Warriors episode from July 4th, 2021, when we visited Sue's home and got a behind-the-scenes look at Sam's life. Also, I've been sitting on this one for a while, but I wanted to save it for this episode. All American Men of War is part of what is called the Big Five collection of DC War Books, while Weird War Tales is part of what I call the Next Five. Perhaps the little five would be more appropriate, but whatever. All-American Men of War lasted 118 issues before being canceled in 1966, while Weird War Tales lasted 124 before being canceled in 1983. So I'm going to call it right now. Weird War Tales is a big five title, and All-American Men of War is a next five title. Numbers don't lie, folks. Don't hate the player. Hate the game. All hail WWT. Intel report. (laughs) Another gift for Max. Split across dual narratives, Night of the Ghoul follows a classic cinema researcher who tracks down an elderly, influential filmmaker. The researcher finds the filmmaker on his deathbed in a remote hospice care facility at night. As the researcher asks the man about his legendary lost film, The Night of the Ghoul, it becomes clear that the supernatural horror from the Golden Age movie is more than just a nightmare on celluloid, as the entire medical facility finds itself menaced by a ravenous menace. Clips from Night of the Ghoul are interspersed throughout the main story, beginning with a showcase of a World War I squad having something hunting them in Europe. A three-issue mini by Dark Horse, released from October through December of 2022, written by Scott Snyder, art by Francesco Francavia. Sorry about that if I butchered that. And keeping on talking, title details. Our fighting forces was the DC comic that ran for 181 issues from October, November, 1954 to September, October, 1978. I have them all. I got Joe Jella to sign issue three in our first Road Warriors to Terrificon in 2021, who we just lost a few weeks before this recording. There were several headliners in the title's history. Gunner and Sarge, and later Pooch, full 49 issues, fighting Devil Dog Lieutenant Larry Rock, who... Uh, Sergeant Rock's brother, for four issues, the odd pro-Vietnam comic featuring Captain Phil Hunter for seven issues, Lieutenant Hunter's Hellcats, Captain Hunter's dad, and lifting concept directly from the Dirty Dozen, for 17 issues, and the Losers, the title's last 58 issues. Fun fact, as stated in the Visiting the Next Five episode we did, The Losers began in 1970 and became from an in-house joke stemming from the fact that all of its members had lost their titles or headlining gigs in them. Captain Storm's self-titled book folded in 67, Johnny Cloud's All-American Men of War was canceled in 66, and Gunner and Sarge were booted from featuring our fighting forces in 1965. Well, with all that out of the way, we're going to let you digest all that. Get yourselves ready. Steal yourselves for what is to come. And take a break. Listen to a little promo for another show out there that, you know, is probably worth your time. We think it's nice. Be a nice person. Listen to a good show. Here comes the break. And when we get back, we'll take a look at the awesome issue at hand. Hey, Jared, I have this idea for a new show for the network. Uh, yeah, yeah um, what is it? 
You know how I liked the 1990s comic book series, The New Warriors? Yeah, yes, yes, mm-hmm, yep. And, and you know how at the Long Boss Crusade we're trying to get the YouTube channel going? Uh, uh, yes, also, yes, also correct. Well, thanks. So, how about you and me do a live stream show about The New Warriors? You've never read the books before, and, and I have them, and so that's a great setup. We could give it a catchy name, like, Come Out to Play. Don't you think that's the greatest idea? Sure, 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 Delvin. That's a great idea. Um, just one question. Yeah? Why do you have me dangling off this ledge, holding me by only one arm? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you'll get it soon. I hope. Come out to play. A new Warriors podcast comes to you live on YouTube every second Tuesday of the month at 8 p.m. Eastern on the Longbox Crusade channel. If you can't watch it there, we replay them on the Longbox Crusade Network podcast feed, available anywhere podcasts can be found. We invite you to come along for the ride, or in other words, new Warriors. Come out to play, And we're back. So as I said before the break, we are going to take a look this time around at our fighting forces featuring the losers, number 153. And Rich is here, as always, with the cover detail. Price, 25 cents, the very best. Pencils by Jack Kirby. Inks by D. Bruce Berry. Our fighting forces featuring the losers. Captain Storm, Johnny Cloud, Gunner and Sarge, yellow on red. A huge German railgun fires in the background with crewmen scurrying around under it. The losers are in the foreground, hiding behind some rocks, along with a scared fifth man dressed up in a strange sci-fi outfit. Gunner points out the gun and shouts, how can we stop that giant cannon, Big Max? And Captain Cloud replies, with our secret weapon, this comic book. In his hand is a sci-fi comic featuring The Devastator, a red vehicle with two flaming cannon and a tail fin. The tagline along the top of our comic reads, it's easy to lie to the enemy. The trick is making him believe it. Cover date, February, March, 1975. Date of release, November 19th, 1974. Killjoy. I'm 100% sure this is a Killjoy but the sci-fi comic also has a cover price of 25 cents. The very best. I see what you did there, Kirby. Some quick research showed that DC Comics during the war sold for 10 cents. Hell, our fighting forces sold for 10 cents until 1962. This issue, 153, was the first one that sold for 25 cents in 1974. A quarter for a comic book during World War II was probably pretty steep. And also sure, pretty sure the swastika on the side of the gun is your classic comic book bad guy identification fair. Indeed. And that's actually a pretty cool killjoy because what this probably would have been a pulp mag. And as we roll into the story, we'll find out that that's a little more on target. But for the cover, yeah, you don't want to wave proof in front of a kid's face that comics used to be cheaper <laughs> or you're technically putting a different price on the cover and you can get into, Hey, says 10 cents on the cover. So Kirby was probably aware of that or made aware of it. So anyway, comments and commendations for this Kirby Rific cover. This is a stunning example of something I'm going to repeat quite a bit through this episode, but it bears repeating. It's a stunning example of King Kirby's simple looking but secretly masterful layouts. The Devastator grabs your eye in the foreground and the rest of the characters are arranged in a receding column that forms an actual arrow pointing directly toward the enemy weapon in the background. The blast from Big Max really pops against the black banner up top. You got five characters an extreme close-up of another comic book or pulp magazine or whatever, and a massive piece of artillery all on one cover and all without seeming even the tiniest bit crowded. It's Jack Kirby, everybody. The guy in the sci-fi outfit has this look on his face like, you guys are going to get me killed, aren't you? 
also like the concussive blast effect coming out of Big Max's barrel. That's the first uh, possible joke of many I'm going to pass up this episode. The Thompson cloud is holding looks too small for my eyes. With all the superhero comics Kirby drew over the years, you definitely get an idea that this issue should appeal to his fans of that genre. Moving on. Chapter one. Big Max. Five pages. Script and pencils throughout by Jack Kirby, inks by Mike Royer. An allied agent disguised as a German soldier is astounded to stumble on a group of German leaders that includes Erwin Rommel, Heinrich Himmler, and Adolf Hitler. Close enough to gun them all down, the agent starts reaching for his pistol when he's stopped by another officer. The officer acknowledged the soldier was probably just nervous being in the presence of the Fuhrer's inspection of Big Max. Unser Max is a 28-cylinder railway artillery piece weighing 479,000 pounds and capable of hurling a shell 38 miles. Max is a mass murderer. The officer reaches for the agent's pistol, just in case. Realizing he'd slipped up, the agent shoves the officer aside, pulls out his weapon, and shoots the guard in front of him. Charging and firing through the German troops, a fusillade of Luger rounds brings the agent down. Dying, the agent whispers to the massive gun, I got sidetracked, Big Max, but you're doomed. The Devastator is coming. The Germans cried around the agent's body. The Devastator. There it is again, from the lips of a dying agent. I've heard the rumors. Does the enemy have such a weapon? Hitler scoffs. Bah! Our answer is Big Max. That night, Big Max speaks in service to the Fuhrer, leaving death ashes and destruction for everything in his range. The allies are stalled because Big Max destroys the road and blows up everything that runs on it to pieces. Killjoy! Page 2, panel 1. The doomed allied agent giving the Sig Heil salute is doing it with his left arm and not his right. Maybe that's what gave him away. There's a German doing it right on page 3 of the gun platform. The allies call the weapon Big Max, but the Germans call it Unser Max, our Max. So Hitler calling it Big Max on page five, panel one is a writing oops. Comments and commendations. The page and a half panel on pages two and three that introduces us to Big Max does an excellent job of portraying the power of the German weapon. The scale of the gun compared to the Germans surrounding it is eye-catching. And I like the anti-aircraft gun off to one side with barrels pointing to Big Max. That said, the muzzle of the railway gun is too Big. It looks like someone could walk upright down the barrel. <laughs> it's a big gun, but not that big. Also like page five, pedal four of a tank being obliterated by a shell. Okay, it's the 70s Kirby formula, folks. Intro page followed by full two-page spread. Boom. It's the hook that keeps on sinking. Does that metaphor work? Is it even a metaphor? Who knows? As Kirby would say, and delivers in pictorial form right here, don't ask, just buy it. I mean, this story opens with an extreme close-up of Hitler, and that isn't even the exciting part. I do gotta say, Mike Royer is one of the more familiar inkers for Kirby's work, especially at DC in the 70s. And he used to be my favorite person for the job. But these days, I tend to agree with those who feel that he was a little too faithful to Jack's pencils. For example, see Barry's inks on the cover. He's keeping the spirit of Jack's work, but also applying some of his own style to it. Inside, the look changes due to Royer's abundance of reverence. Jack turned in some tight, detailed pencils, for sure, but they were not intended to be finished art. That said, I love the sound effects work throughout this entire issue, but also in this section. And those are provided or at least finished by Royer. And we get our first appearance of the famous Kirby Crackle special effect in this story on page five, panel two. How could you not be having fun already, huh? And let's see if that fun continues as we turn the page to chapter two, Devastator versus Big Max. It's six pages, same credits. They go all through the issue, folks. Kirby's got this book on a stranglehold. Nobody else is pitching in except the aforementioned folks. Synopsis for this chapter goes as follows. The losers huddle around a radio being operated by a senior agent. It was the third agent the Allies had lost to Big Max, and the Nazis had sent a mocking requiem to let them know it. 
but all the news was not bad. The Germans knew about the Devastator and dared the Allies to use it against Big Macs. It meant they were curious and wanted to see the Allied weapon in action. To punctuate the points, the scream of a massive incoming round from Big Mac splits the sky. The shell hits a nearby junction and knocks the losers off their feet. Secondary explosions ripple through the area as the losers regain their footing. Cloud and Sarge go to investigate the damage, while Storm and Gunner wait for rocket ship Rumpkin. It's a grim scene as Cloud and Sarge head to the junction. Ambulances and tow trucks go in empty and come out loaded. The mobile stuff hits during the day, and Big Macs hits at night. The standoff had to end, even if they had to work with that nut, rocket ship Rumpkin. The two losers finally crest a small hill and see the destruction Big Macs had wrought on one armored unit. But the next unit would get through. Rocket ship Rumpkin's twin-barreled cockamamie Devastator would see to that. Sarge objects that it was loony as hell and gestures over the blazing ruin before him. You can't stop this with a loony idea. But Cloud says it was too late to back out. Flames reach some ammo and the blast knocks the two losers down. They get knocked over all over the place in this chapter. It was time to go back to the others where rocket ship Rumpkin waited. Rumpkin is a science fiction fan and a voracious reader of pulp magazines. He has a stack of them and eagerly hands them out to Gunner and Storm to read. There's no Killjoy here in particular, so we're gonna move on to our CNC, which I'm gonna start by saying, holy splash page, baby. Say what you will about the abstract elements incorporated into Kirby's style at this point of his career, and, and people have, but at the risk that I don't care about of sounding like a broken record, and wouldn't it be more of a scratch record? Broken records are broken, right? Anyway, Kirby is one of the undisputed masters of the comic book page layout, as I keep saying and will keep saying. He's using the negative space as a caption box. You've got that great big bold lettering, the close-up of one face leading you to the next and the next deeper into the scene. And there's the acting of each character. Everyone is up to something, no matter how simple. They're all behaving differently. It's just some people hanging around in a room, but it's anything but dull to look at. That's the Kirby way, people. Rich spotlights a lot of the action in his CNC. Uh, so I'll grab panel one on page 10. It's a splash panel filled with Kirby carnage as you like it. Masses of twisted metal, columns of smoke, roaring flames, shattered earth, and two puny, feeble human observers looking as powerless as they feel. And with that final panel on page 11, what could be an overly crowded, cramped panel is brought to effortless looking life by the king. You've got Rumpkin in the foreground, handing back a magazine to Storm, which leads us to the other soldier reading in the background with someone else reading over their shoulder in the back, all without emptying the room of any furnishings. And it all reads smoothly. Again, this stuff gets overlooked by people who talk about Kirby these days, I feel. It's all about the dynamism, the explosions, the crackle. But something like this, so skillful, gets overlooked. It's just perfection. Kirby is a master of the big, bold sound effects. I teased it a bit last segment, but formally acknowledge it here. Page 8, panels 1 through 3 of the incoming round, explosion, and the echoing rumble of repeated blasts at the junction of great. On the next page, same panels, three columns of vehicles on a dusty road bringing the bandaged casualties out of the junction, the cost of Big Macs. The dead cow in panel five is a nice grim touch too. I lingered on this page for a while. Story space is picking up. Chapter three, Rodney Rumpkin, science fiction soldier, seven pages. Give the kid his bucks back! Cloud roars as he and Sarge return to headquarters. So startling Storm, Gunner, and the senior agent that the issues go flying. PFC Rodney Rumpkin snaps to attention, but Cloud puts him at ease as he begins to talk to him. Rumpkin was assigned to a supply company, and the other troops there were responsible for his rocket ship nickname. It wasn't easy to avoid fights. Cloud admits that he's a science fiction fan too. You can't stop the future. He begins to flip through a stack of pulps that Rumpkin's mom had sent. Invaders from the Ninth Dimension. Battle on Saturn. 
Raiders of the Red Planet. Cloud mused over a story where Earth uses atom bombs to destroy Martians. Deliberate foreshadow there. While Cloud muses over an ultrasonic disintegrator. I'll get back to that. When Rumpkin asks if anyone had seen heat rays of Venus, Sarge grumbles, no, but the captain built your damn devastator. The losers are a special missions group and can order secret weapons. They had built a twin-barreled devastator and want Rumpkin to pilot it. Rumpkin starts stammering and joy. But, 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 but sir, did, 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 do you think I could qualify? When Sarge confesses the job came with a futuristic pilot's costume, Ronnie Rumpkin eagerly volunteers. The next day, a noisy secret weapon makes its appearance through the streets of town. It's a curvy green rocket-powered vehicle with two sparking cannons, white U.S. stars, a tail fin, and a bubble canopy. Suddenly, three German planes swoop in on an attack run, and the town's people scramble for shelter. Devastators twin cannon fire, and all three planes disintegrate, their pilots parachuting to safety. The townspeople are stunned. The weapon was made by the devil. It destroys without effort. As the armored giant moves off, the losers inside her admit that it had been a good show. News should get around fast. And the Air Force guys had done a great job with a gimmicked captured aircraft. Will the Germans bite on the bait being offered? Rumpkin sat exposed in the bubble canopy in his pilot costume, moping. The whole thing was phony. The weapon, the controls. What could happen to a phony? A massive explosion behind them shelved with such thoughts. A second one, even, close, even closer, blew pieces off the Devastator. Big Max is out! In broad daylight, Cloud yells. Storm desperately radios. Airstrike 4! This is it! This is it! Go and get him! Overhead, an aluminum overcast of B-17s wing their way to target. German anti-aircraft fire tries to defend Big Macs, but there are too many bombers. Salvos of bombs wipe out Big Macs. With a final 500-pounder dropped with, rest in peace, Big Macs, written on its side. Sarge is aboard one of the bombers. He can't believe the loony plan worked. On the ground, however, Big Macs hadn't gone quietly. The Devastator had also been destroyed, and the losers at Rumpkin had been lucky to escape. Rumpkin feels like a fraud, however. It's not as if the Devastator had been real. No one would believe him. Why not, Cloud asks. The Nazis did. He has the three men to fall in and march back to town looking sharp. To all the Rodney Rumpkins, victories are won yesterday. Recognition must wait for tomorrow. Killjoy! History Minute. Like you didn't see this one coming, right? Come on. Page 16, panels 3 and 4 makes it look like Big Max is rapid firing at the Devastator. As I am about to discuss, it took several minutes at best to reload these big railway guns. Railway guns began being used during the U.S. Civil War, but reached their apex during World War II, after which cruise missiles and bombers rendered them obsolete. Many countries built railway artillery. France, Great Britain, the U.S., and the Soviets, for examples. But as is often the case during the Second World War, the Germans said, hold my beer. A brief sidebar first, during World War I, the Germans had a 38-centimeter gun named Max, also called Langermax, literal translation, Long Max, which was a long-range, heavy-siege, and coast-defense gun. Originally a naval gun, it was adapted for land service when it became clear that some of the ships for which it was intended would be delayed and it would be very useful on the Western Front. Eight were built and could fire a 1,650-pound, 13-inch shell over 13 miles. It was the biggest railway gun the Germans used during the war. The French and Italians had ones that were bigger. For the sake of this story and what part one tells us, between the combination of the few photos, bad photos, and the fact that a lot of the German railway guns looked alike, the best I can guess for here would be the Krupp K5 an 11.1-inch gun that could fire 15 536-pound shells an hour, close to 40 miles. 25 were built. Two were used to counter the Allied landings at Anzio, Italy, and were dubbed Anzio Annie and the Anzio Express. One K-5 was captured after the war and is now on display at the Fort Lee Army Ordnance Museum. But now for the Germans to do German things. Schwerer Gustav, Hedy Gustav, was an 80 centimeter, that's 31 and a half inches, folks, railway gun. It was developed in the late 1930s by Krupp as siege artillery for the explicit purpose of destroying the main forts 
of the French Maginot Line, the strongest fortifications in existence at the time. The fully assembled gun weighed 1,490 tons and could fire shells weighing seven tons, a range of 29 miles, about 14 times a day. I mean, you should look at pictures of this thing. This thing is the size of a five-story building. The gun was designed in preparation for the Battle of France, but was not ready for action when that battle began. And in any case, the Wehrmacht's Blitzkrieg offensive through Belgium rapidly outflanked and isolated the Maginot Line's static defenses, which were then besieged with more conventional heavy guns until French capitulation. Gustav was later deployed in the Soviet Union during the Battle of Sevastopol, where, among other things, it destroyed a munitions depot located roughly 98 feet underground. The gun was moved to Leningrad and may have been intended to be used in the Warsaw Uprising. We've talked about that, like other German heavy siege pieces, but the uprising was crushed before it could be prepared to fire. Gustav was destroyed by the Germans near the end of the war in 1945 to avoid capture by the Soviet Red Army. Schwerer Gustav was the largest caliber rifled weapon ever used in combat, and in terms of overall weight, the heaviest mobile artillery piece ever built. It fired the heaviest shells of any artillery piece. The logistics of operating it were staggering. It took a crew of 250, three days to assemble, and 2,500 to lay the additional required track and dig embankments. Photos of all three platforms I've discussed are in the album. And I don't want to go off on a huge tangent, but to give Rumpkin his due about waiting for recognition, I will remind everyone of the Ghost Army, a.k.a. the 23rd Special Headquarters Troops, that used inflatable tanks and aircraft, faked radio transmissions, and recordings of moving vehicles to trick the Nazis into believing there was an army massing opposite Calais, France, which is where the Allied landings would take place for D-Day. It was actually commanded by General Patton. So convincing was the deception that vitally needed reinforcements to oppose D-Day were refused because the real landings hadn't happened yet. The story was kept classified until 1996 and the unit was awarded a Congressional Gold Medal in 2022. Comments and commendations. Because I'm an infant. Aha! Got the drop on you with my disintegrating pistol. And brother, when it disintegrates, it disintegrates. Well, what do you know? It disintegrated. If at least half of our audience didn't instantly mentally go to Daffy Duck's 1953 Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century when Cloud mentioned the ultrasonic disintegrator, page 13, panel 5, I'm disappointed in a lot of you. I might have been able to put this in Killjoy, but I'm more interested in having a conversation about it. Referring to the cover was Big Mac stopped by a comic book or a pulp magazine. There is a notable difference. The issues portrayed in the story looked a lot heftier than a comic, which would, to be fair, excuse the 25-cent World War II era cover price of said comic on the cover. But that doesn't exactly give it the same, same cachet, does it? Favorite panels. Page 12, panel 1 of clouds startling everyone so much the pulps go flying. The chapter title excitement above him only helps. Page 14, panel 5, the first appearance of Devastator. Sound effects? Oh, I'll give you sound effects. And page 17, panels 1 through 3 of the B-17s approaching and destroying Big Macs. Yeah, I'd just like to add before I get into my bit. Again, I don't read the history minutes ahead of time if I can avoid it because I like to be impacted right when we're recording. And even when we're reading a Jack Kirby comic, Rich finds a way to dig up real history that is even crazier and more insane than the comic we just made our way through. And it's a Jack freaking Kirby comic and real history still outdoes it every time. That stuff is nuts. And I'd also like to add, we got Big Macs. We got longer Max. Well, what Rich missed is that the Germans eventually made a gun actually named after me, and it translates to perfectly adequate Max, or so I've been told. So, moving on to my CNC after that perfectly accurate historical fact has been recorded for posterity. I'll say this was a great action packed finale to a story that really relied on the intensity of this final conflict. It's all build up, it's all build up. So, here's where you got to pull it off. Naturally, I'm going to focus on the moments that took place indoors, at least at first. I feel like most Kirby commentary, as I said before, focuses on his dynamism and his facility for action scenes. But, like I said, not enough talk goes around about his skill at laying out a page or a scene. I know I've been pointing this out all episode, but look at that. 
there was a reason. And this issue is filled with all kinds of examples too. Check out page 12, panel two. You got multiple characters all picking up the various scattered pulp mags. And all of this is happening in, again, a fully furnished room. No cheating. Sure, it takes up a full row at the bottom of the page, but come on. That's skill right there. We've all seen people do it worse. All you got to do is turn the page from there to see yet another display. Page 13, panel 5. Rumpkin dreamily gesturing in the foreground as multiple other characters debate the merits of various imaginary weapons as Rich described. All well, all except the one who's harumphing the whole thing. He's the Ben Grimm of the group. Heh? It's a Jack Kirby comic. Come on. Ben Grimm's going to show up even if his name's different. And again, all taking place across the breadth of a fully furnished and detailed room. Also, check out the faces in the crowd on page 15, panel 4. There are actually different faces in that crowd, unlike a lot of shots you get in comic books. Kirby always endeavored to render individuals as often as he could, actual individuals. And you can even see him trying to give our protagonists a variety of head shapes and facial features. That's effort, folks, for no extra charge. And I'll just add that the final bomb used for the coup de grace on page 17, panel 4, would make a fine profile pic for me. Or perhaps an engravement on my urn that I'll occupy for an hour or so before Gail pours my ashes into one of the cat's litter boxes. And, and Gail just walked in and got her earpod piece while I was reading that. I was going to say, that was extraordinarily well-timed. Too bad she didn't hear that. <laughs> uh, she probably heard it. And, um, yeah, and, you know, could have written that herself. So um, <laughs> with the issue out of the way, that's the story. It's just, it's one, it's one full length battle tale here, folks. And we reach the end. We're going to move on to the mail call section in lieu of the APO Weird War Tales page that we usually cover. And uh, I'm going to let Rich take a swing at this one. Mail call. Header art of a Jeep speeding away from the viewer, spewing mail behind it from an open mailbag. By Joe Kubert, a one-page editorial by Jack Kirby about the losers that your co-hosts will take turns reading. Before the letters begin, in the issue succeeding this one, the reader will have had his chance to absorb and assess the format in which the losers will continue their operations in a world at war. As a special missions group, which is extremely mobile and trained to carry out assignments wherever descent, the losers are in a position to give the reader a wide and diverse view of World War II as an overall dimensional experience. Hardcore fans of the previous productions may be a bit discombobulated by the shift in approach, visualization, and intensity of drama. It is a natural disorientation which can pay off dividends if the reader is an individual who prides himself as a seeker of unlimited insights. The war, through many eyes, comes closer to the true version than a limited, idealized account. Speaking for this editor, the losers are not fictional characters, but bits and pieces of myself and the people who shared the war with me. In this context, we shall all see it, sniff the air of the times, and know that the sounds spelled out graphically in the action panels are true duplications of what I heard with my own ears in places where men really died or suffered with their wounds until they could be moved to the rear. This means ditto for the enemy. They followed their own drummer into the field of trial and paid their bitter dues in these same places. I suppose what I'm really trying to say is that the scene of action is irrelevant in a story if there's a tiny element of actual involvement shooting live sparks into the fibers of the theme. This is the true measure of a good comic magazine. It's got to give what's really there. The losers are going to pull it all out of the war bag my way. It'll clank and rattle where you see it and collect it. Knowing the reader for the demanding rascal he is, I expect some interesting hassles and the stimulating atmosphere of flying flack. The reader will feel it like an expert, and I will feel 20 years younger. We'll all come out of it winners, because the losers will come out of it better than it ever was. All right, and the Kirby speak continues, people, as follows. This is the value of the letter column. It's the involvement of the reader with the story. It's the final facet that rounds out the quality of story because it has a direct bearing on its evolution. Therefore, the reader is as responsible to his investment as the editor is to his professionalism. The attitude must be combined concern for the product, but for that only. 
the reader as well as the editor has to come across with valid probing. That's always been the play surrounding a good mag. Mail call has begun to perk with the emergence of losers number 151. The stream is flowing and it's flowing strong and clear. That's just great with me. I'm getting an image of you and in turn am projecting my image in some form of interest. This last interplay is the comic magazine in its completeness. May I make this one final suggestion before the flag goes up on the kudos and brickbats? Some of you are gonna go bowling and come out of the alley to find that the initial copies of the new losers may not be available for your collection. If this catastrophic event comes to pass, your best bet in restoring to order this deplorable situation is to seek the sources where these missing copies are most likely to be secured. My personal supply is most meager, but there are many fan magazines abroad in the land with sections devoted to the individual areas of supply. If you have a subscription to our fighting forces, you've got nothing to worry about. Efficiency is the keynote at National Comics. Save your issues. There are a segment of times you'll want to remember as years pass. Like song and film, they remember ever present to trigger and stimulate images of places and faces you may lose sight of on the road to pompous wisdom. What is Americana today may be formal art tomorrow. Getting back to the losers, you'll find them in bivouac at Mail Call, P.O. Box 336, Newberry Park, California, 91320. Thank you, Jack Kirby, because Jack lived on the West Coast at this time, so he's answering these letters directly, and I really, I, I need to read more of these issues with letters, pages, and tack, because I want to see Jack responding to people with this level of near-babbling Kirby speech. <laughs> yeah, like, two people's actual fan letters. That's got to be priceless. All right, so... Well, and that last paragraph is spot on. There are a segment of times you want to remember as the years pass. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's why we're doing this show. <laughs> I mean, my D&D &D people know the phrase high Gygaxian because the guy who wrote a lot of early 80s, late 70s D&D, &D, Gary Gygax, wrote in this incredibly overly wrought, obscure and redundant vocabulary laden language that is it's almost its own thing. And Kirby has that here, too. Like, he actually holds himself back in the script, unless you're reading, like, the New Gods and the Fourth World stuff where he lets loose. But here you're seeing, like, Kirby being what he thinks is philosophical and deep. And it's its its own kind of thing, man. It, it's like being on mushrooms or something. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just priceless. And I, I, I can't I, – I've got to now look up other issues and, and see if he really does answer these letters himself because they're mailing them to him. They're not going to the DC Comics place. They're going out to his place in California. So <laughs> before I babble on forever about Kirby speak and high guy Gaxian, I'm going to let Rich lead us in to the little bonus section in the back of the book that is really cool. And I'll let him tell you what it is. Some uniforms, insignias, and medals of World War II. Two pages by Kirby and Royer. One each for the Allies and SS. Both are completed fully in the album. All right. And like it says at the top of the first page, let it all hang out. Whatever you say, Jack. Remember what I was saying before about Kirby speak? You're, you're soaking in it, okay? So since I can't speak to the, the accuracy of any of this stuff, I'll comment instead on, you guessed it, Jack Kirby, master of design. Both of these pages are just fun to look at, which I suppose is disturbing since one of them is about putting Nazi stuff on display. But still, the heavily shadowed profiles of soldiers with hanging badges for a header with two full figures fully dressed in detail below, surrounded by still more badges and pins. I mean, Kirby makes it all work and provides just enough variety to keep your eyes entertained all the way through. I thought these were super fun to look at. One of the best things about these re about the reprint issues of Weird War Tales was that it had the battle album stuff in it, like this, that showed the readers' real-life units, patches, etc. Kirby was obviously a fan. German patches are cool as is the 77th Division Excalibur badge, which shows an arm coming out of the water holding 
a sword, you know, ex Excalibur, right? <laughs> Some watery tart lobbing a scimitar at you <laughs> does not make you a head of government. Some moistened bent less a scimitar at me, <laughs> then put me away. <laughs> right, I'll, I'll, I'll keep on flapping my lips here. Moving on to the next favorite section, ads. Ugh. The classic conundrum of having the combo of ads we've already done and not really liking what's left. Endangered animals. Steve Scout. Engraver plates. But I quickly warmed up to, look, two great games from Monroe. Up and on and Snoopy Hockey. Yours for $25 and $195 on eBay, respectively. That's telling. Up and on and Snoopy Hockey. Up and on Sports Center. Eight exciting family games. Football, hockey, basketball, baseball, bowling, horseshoes, shuffleboard, and up and on. What's up and on? Looks like it's some manner of like shuffleboard, you know, try to underhand a ball into a ball pit or something like that. I think that's what it is. And Snoopy and his pals. Monroe presents Snoopy Hockey Game. This is a fun, fast action game. Monroe games are available at toy stores and toy departments everywhere. And then uh, there's a dotted line underneath that, which goes... Monroe Johnson Sports Fan Club. It's free. Join now. Your membership entitles you to receive the following. One Monroe Johnson Sports Fan Club membership certificate to hang on your wall. Opportunity to buy sport action games and toys at discount prices and much, much more. Complete the fan club application and send to P.O. Box 80, Long Beach, California, 90801. It has a little, you know, fill in the card with your pertinent information, name, address, age, school, Favorite sport, favorite sports star, favorite sport action game. <laughs> I don't remember seeing any of this stuff, but I, like I said, I went online. I was looking for this stuff on eBay. And yeah, there's obviously a reason why this you know, Snoopy hockey is like 195 bucks because it shows Snoopy and Charlie Brown and Lucy all running around, you know, waving hockey sticks and two kids, you know, playing on the game and everything. So like I said, I didn't have any of this stuff, but. I could probably be persuaded to have gotten the Snoopy hockey game. Let's let's just be honest. All right. So for my spotlighted ad, I'm not going to let Rich have all the fun and, and have all the Duck Dodgers references to himself. So I don't even care if we've covered this ad before, people. It's my birthday or something. This is in honor of the disintegrating pistol. It's one of those ads of a bunch of gimmicks and crap you can buy, you know, your x-ray specs and all that nonsense. It's the potato gun. And the text for the ad goes like this. Here's a new fast action gun that shoots potato pellets as far as 50 feet with more than a thousand shots from a single potato. Absolutely harmless. And you never run out of ammo. But you just said there's a thousand shots, so you eventually, eh, whatever. But the drawing itself also, I, I feel like, fits in with a Jack Kirby comic. Because that is like emblematic of how he would do technology that didn't really exist. I mean, that thing, there's no way that that is what the gun actually looks like or any gun actually looks like, but it gets the job done and it's got a big old potato stuck on the end of the barrel. So it, it just looks like Kirby needed a futuristic piece of tech. He would often just flip through catalogs of car parts or kitchen appliances, and he would just take the basic shape of one of those and add stuff to it or subtract from it. And that's exactly what this potato gun drawing looks like. So, hey, I can work it in with the Kirby theme if I try really, really hard. So, ads out of the way. <laughs> We're going to move on to a little section we like to call Got Any Last Words? And I'll start. I say, this is a great example of what Kirby does best. Action and dynamism, yes. Even in the panels that might otherwise not have such elements in the script. Big, fast-moving plots that even seem exciting when virtually nothing is happening. And it's also a perfect showcase, as I mentioned, of Kirby's 70s formatting for storytelling, as we would see in full effect if we were covering, say, Commandy, The Last Boy on Earth, which has that first page is a splash, next thing is definitely going to be a two-page splash, and it just goes from there. You know, you can see that formula in action in that series perfectly. And I got an omnibus right behind me in the closet. Underneath all the fun and bombast, though, is another one of Kirby's constants, the message. Using a lie to beat other liars, and indeed, liars that follow the regime that invented the big lie, 
like the Big Macs, says something about Kirby's views about war and human nature and how the two intersect. He was deep, people, and he was and is forever king. Happy birthday, Max. <laughs> I remember being surprised when I opened my first Kirby R Fighting Forces because everything I'd ever seen him do previously was superhero stuff. I did mention that I never picked up such a fury, right? Right? He did 12 issues, 151 to 162. I still aim to do one issue each of the big five over the course of the show. Two down, three to go. And there was just no way a Kirby's loser based on an enemy weapon named Big Max being defeated with the help of a comic book wasn't going to be the one I selected. <laughs> I also thought there'd be a load of side conversation on the side subject matter. I will also ashamedly admit that I was never too much of a Kirby fan when I was younger. The inks, angles, sound effects, I don't know, it, it just didn't do much for me. But, you know, I used to be cool towards Jared Tlaoc's art too, and it grew on me as I got older. Spoiler, Kirby does not ever appear in the pages of Weird War Tales. This was more fun than even I had originally planned. Yeah, I know a lot of people who didn't like Kirby's art when I was a kid, and I used to get a lot of the, the rare kirby drawn stuff that would show up in garage sales off those friends and trades because they were like oh i got this in this box of comics but this is ugly it's all blocky and stuff and i'd be like hey i'll give you this one issue of batman or whatever for like they'd give me five kirby books they were all beat to hell but you know garage sale fine so i'd make out like a bandit and all that stuff is long since dust by now so <laughs> that's it folks the issue is done the ads the last word is in we're going to move on to a little section of the show that we all know and love called the Dead Letter Office, where we take a look at social interactions with our listeners and stuff like that. So let me mention up top that you can go to redbubble.com, search the Weird Warriors podcast, and order our awesome logo drawn and designed by Bill Walco of the Hero Business and get that logo put on any piece of merchandise you can possibly imagine. Go ahead and do it. I mean, somebody's got to. <laughs> All right. So you can also write to us over at uh, weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com and we'll get to that. Meanwhile, on social media in general, Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us at Weird Warriors Podcast on Facebook or at Weird War Pod on Twitter. I promise I'm still there. People came by to visit us by the names of Dan Brown, David Steele of the Earth 2 Podcast, Dave Marchand, Michael Lively, the Earth 2 Podcast show account. Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, our good buddy Bill Mooney, and Magazines and Monsters, just one of the many fine podcasts hosted by Billy Delicious over on Twitter. All right, Doc Strange, look him up. And also, we uh, over on uh, <laughs> over on Twitter, I got two hits over there. And I, I mean, everyone said I should come back to Twitter. Eh, I got two hits, but there were some good people, so. Uh, so it's all worth it in the end. We got WL3, who is at WLomax on Twitter. And Luke Giaconetti pops up over there. And he also retweeted us over there. So, you know, that's that's the network in action, people. That's the troops coming together, driving by to say hi. Over on Gmail, which again, you can reach us at weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com. Our good buddy Jason Zeller, founder and sole owner of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award, wrote in to uh, talk about the 1997 Weird War Tales four-issue miniseries, one of our episodes covering that. And he said, I thought the cover was a decent one, but it's just disappointing when it has nothing to do with the interior content. You guys were right in your teaser from last episode about the story New Toys. This felt straight from a weird take on Toy Story. Ever since watching that film, it's always in the back of your mind that toys may have a life of their own when no one is watching. In this story, I thought that the new toys were going to be some battery-operated toys or robots. I certainly did not see giant bugs coming. I think if it was done today, it would be some kind of digital or virtual toys that would take over. I'd be curious how they would depict this. Sniper's Alley had an ending I saw a mile away. <laughs> Sniper, mile away, get it. But it was a very tense and atmospheric story. This was my favorite of the three stories with the emotional struggle of the protagonist searching to kill his best friend and later his own true love. The art was a bit of a struggle for me here, but certainly set the tone. No weirdness noted, just the grimness and irony of war. Run 
was a brutal story that did not seem to have any weirdness to it. Just senseless death in a stalemate war situation, and it was hard to read. Sadly, this story would not have bothered me when I first read it as a teen in the 90s. Now, I take it to heart when the captain is realizing that by following his orders, his men will never see their parents, their wives, or their children again. Once again, the art was a little off-putting for me, just very dark and sketchy. I agree with him there. No weirdness here either. I think the idea that the general was haunted by the deaths of his men would have been a fitting end to the story, giving it a weird vibe and saving the darkness of the story for me a bit. Thanks for covering these special missions. I enjoy them all, and it is fun to just hear you guys discuss comics. Nice call on the PlayStation 1 Wild Arms game ad. I think that era was the best for good quality RPG games. I loved Suicoden 1 and Suicoden 2 and sunk so many hours of my life into those games trying to save the world. You and me both, Jason. The Suikoden series is awesome. The first two games in particular are fantastic. Wild Arms, just, yeah, I'd also argue for the Super Nintendo having some gems, but hey, this is not the Max's uh, Retro Gamer RPG podcast, so before I run completely rampant, Rich is only going to let me get away for so much on my birthday episode, people, and then then he's going to crack the whip. So here is our esteemed co-host, Rich, with a teaser for the next episode. Weird War Tales 41, if my math is correct. For real this time, Max. Another full-length battle tale. We return to the Civil War for the first time since Weird War Tales number nine's Blood Brothers. Got a crazy feeling there might be a history minute in this one, but you better tune in and make sure. To quote Lex Luthor in Superman 2, never thought this thing would go the distance. We're a third of the way there on just this title, folks. Prost! All right, there you go. How can you stand the anticipation, the mystery of knowing if there will be a history minute and a Civil War issue? I am going to explode if I don't find out. But you're going to have to wait, and I'm going to have to wait too. But in the meantime, Rich and I, no matter how tense things are, will remain the Batlam Bros. We're the Weird Warriors. We're all kinds of things that I can't say on this podcast. But this podcast is. The Weird Warriors podcast, as you know, and we promise to make war no more.